Good morning. It's always a privilege to uh, be here with you and to uh, together look into God's Word. <clears throat> In light of uh, Jim's prayer, and thank you, Jim, this morning for your prayers for uh, the needs and uh, the ultimately the broader needs. Um, I, I've been thinking about what to speak about. I, I'm not sure I've nailed uh, any kind of a title that's really particularly helpful, but uh, the prayer was helpful in thinking a little bit about uh, God and how God reveals himself or how God makes himself known. Um, part of the question comes from, for example, the world we live in in our country, and we might ask, you know, where is God in all of this? How is he revealing himself to those who are out to do evil? How is he uh, uh, making himself known amongst people? And uh, uh, God is very direct in his word about what he does. And so my plan, and I just should warn you before I tell you my plan, my plan was a bad one. Um, the Gospel of John gives us a wonderful outline into uh, how God does this. And so my original plan was just to do the whole thing, right? Um, I just didn't know about the timing on that because there's 21 chapters in John and, you know, it, you have a limit. And I, I got a limit of, of noon, but no one said which day. And I think if we aim for Monday noon, we could do the whole Gospel of John. The reason I don't want to do the whole thing is it all fits together. It would be nice to do it in one setting. So what I decided to do is to do some selected passages from John to pick up a theme. John is writing, obviously, is this close, dear friend, one of the sort of the inner three with Jesus as one of his disciples. John writes his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is reminding him of the truths that he was an eyewitness to, many of them. And, uh, and, and John is, is relaying this information to these young churches that are now kind of one generation past the life of, of Jesus. And one of the things that John does a very nice job of is showing how God makes himself known. And so, uh, while the title may not be great, uh, uh, the Gospel of John is, is where we want to spend most of our time. We're going to spend a little bit of time, a couple of other passages, but for the most part, we're going to follow some of John's thinking as he explains a little bit as to how God makes himself known, and hopefully along the way, I can show why that is helpful and ultimately hopeful to where we find ourselves today. So let's begin in John 18. If you have your Bibles, make your way to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. <clears throat> Chapter 18 is Jesus on trial, uh, just before ultimately he's going to go to the cross to be crucified. And uh, a story is probably familiar to you if you're familiar with scripture. And uh, we want to pick up a few things. In the outline, I believe I started at verse uh, 31. I actually want to go back up to verse 28. John 18 will begin in verse 28. We'll look at uh, a selected passage here, and that'll, this will kind of be our base passage, and we'll work to uh, look at some other passages to help understand what's going on here and uh, some of the explanation we're looking for. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. 
So just a little bit of backup. You'll remember that after Jesus is praying uh, in the garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, who, who if you remember, fall asleep during that, uh, those three times of prayer, uh, Jesus eventually is arrested and, and taken on trial. And there's a little bit of complexity here because uh, the Jews have their own laws and their own legal system and their own way of dealing with things. And the way that that's sort of come to be by New Testament times is the highest in the land is the high priest, which is Caiaphas. And so they go through a system of sort of trials or, or, or something like trials to um, uh, evaluate Jesus against their own law. But because the land is occupied by the Romans, ultimately, if the law requires death, that's not something they're allowed to do. Only the Romans can do. So they've already sort of tried Jesus, really not legally according to their own law, but nonetheless, they've tried Jesus. And now they're going to go from Caiaphas, their high priest, now to this Roman governor, Pilate. Okay? So we're going from sort of the, the, the Jewish legal system now to the Roman legal system and, and see how that sort of unfolds here. <clears throat> This has been happening through the night. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, uh, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So they're coming up to the celebration of Passover, and they wanted to celebrate that, and, uh, and so they didn't want to be uh, unclean. So Pilate came out to them, uh, Pilate's palace would be a Gentile palace, right? Pilate is a Roman. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And, and so they don't come. They obviously send words somehow or other, and Pilate comes out to them, and he asks, what charges are you bringing against this man? Uh, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. In other words, I don't really need to be involved in any of this. I mean, if he's broken one of your laws, take care of it. I mean, you can do, do whatever you need to do. And so, um, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And so what they're arguing, what the Jewish Jewish leaders are arguing is whatever Jesus has done, and notice no one's actually talking about what he's done. That's really not an issue. But whatever it is, it requires execution. They're not allowed to do it. So now they're working their way up the legal system and now over to the sort of the Roman side. And so we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. They took, uh, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die, this idea of execution. Now, if you just think about it just for a moment, if the Jews would have been allowed to execute Jesus, they would have stoned him, right? That was their form of execution. If the Romans are going to execute Jesus, their form is crucifixion on a cross, right? And so Jesus had predicted he would die from crucifixion, which means somehow we're going to have to get from the G Jewish legal system over to the Roman legal system, because it's the Romans who do crucifixion, it's the Jews who do stoning. And I say that if you kind of think back through the New Testament, there's several times where people are almost stoned. And if you think about it, had it ever happened, it would have been illegal, and, and so you remember that they pick up stones to stone the woman caught in adultery, right? And Jesus says, you know, whoever has no sin, you cast the first one. Had they attempted to do that, that would have been breaking Roman law. They have no right to put someone to death. So there's a few instances that you can kind of think back on and, and see that uh, uh, it's interesting, the conflict between the Jewish legal system and them wanting to follow their laws and ultimately the Roman system and, and their sort of have the ultimate power. 
Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside to the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So that's really the issue in Pilate's mind is this guy's claiming to be king. And of course, Pilate is a governor and he's a governor on behalf of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is run by a Caesar and the Caesar doesn't really allow other kings. So if Jesus is a king, it's probably a little bit of a problem, but it's also kind of weird. If Jesus is a king, Pilate's the governor. He doesn't even know if he's a king. So we'd, we'd be talking about not a very powerful king, not a, you know what I mean? So it's, it, it's he's asking, are, are, are you this king uh, of the Jews? And another irony in what's going on here is the fact that Herod had taken that title for himself. Herod's long dead by now. But if you remember when Jesus was born, Herod had taken the title, I'm the king of the Jews. And in the eyes of the Romans, Herod was a Jew. In the eyes of the Jews, Herod was a half-breed. He was an Edomian. And so Herod had told Rome to call himself the king of the Jews. The Jews had never agreed that he was the king. So this, was, this makes it very ironic when wise men from the east show up in Jerusalem and ask Herod, where is he who's born king of the Jews? And they ask that, of course, to the king of the Jews. And so he's like, I am the king of the Jews. And we're like, no, no, the one that's being born. And Herod didn't know as the king of the Jews, he had no idea who the king of the Jews was, which is all sort of ironic. And now it's all coming back together, this idea of the king of the Jews. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your idea, Jesus asked? Or did others just tell you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. Uh, What is it you have done? Okay, so number one, are you king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't really answer the question, just says, is this something you've heard from somewhere else or do you come up with this? And, and now the question has changed, what is it that you've done? And Jesus responds this way, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world, which seems to be he's answering the question. I, I'm a king, I've got a kingdom, but not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Okay, we're kind of piecing this together. I asked you if you're a king. We kind of got sidetracked on the things. I asked you what you did. Now you're telling me you're a king, but not of this world. Uh, or, Or your kingdom is not of this world. It does seem to be that you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Okay, so you can see we're kind of getting direct questions and can I say it this way, indirect answers. We're we're kind of moving around uh, a little bit here. He does seem to be a king. He does seem to have a kingdom. The kingdom's not of this world. Now we find out the reason he came was to testify to truth. Let's just briefly finish here. Verse 38, what is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and asked, I find no basis for a charge against him. He's not trying to usurp Roman authority, right? He's not trying to overthrow the Roman government or or trying to get towards ruling in some way. He doesn't seem to be any threat at all. And so Pilate says, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time uh, of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Obviously the story goes on. I want to go back and look at this response of Jesus to, um, 
Pilate's sort of statement, you are a king then. Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born, the reason why Christ was born, he said, was to come into the world to testify to the truth. Now, in this case, that word testify, it's going to be helpful if you can hear the Greek word. Again, John would have been writing in the Greek language, and so this would be recorded in Greek. Probably, Jesus was speaking Greek. Maybe it was Aramaic. It's hard to know. Pilate would be a Greek speaker. So, did Jesus know Greek? We're not exactly sure. Was, this, was there a translator there going between Aramaic and Greek? Uh, Aramaic would be much closer to Hebrew than to Greek as far as languages go. But nonetheless, the Gospels were in Greek. So the Greek word for testify is martyreo, where we get our word martyr from. And so the idea here is to testify. That's what Jesus says. I was born and came into the world to testify. Testify simply means to bear witness to, to give a testimony for, to testify to martyreo in Greek, where we get the word martyr from, the truth. That's what I came to do. I came to testify, right? I came into the world to testify to the truth, to bear witness to the truth, to, in this Greek word, to martyreo, and we get the word martyr. And so we would say that a martyr is someone who testifies to their cause. A Christian martyr, a Christian dear brother or sister standing for the faith in places where there's uh, physical opposition, they become a martyr in testifying to the truth. Testifying of the truth, we would say that, to martyreo. It kind of helps us, just a, a quick little sidebar, as we think about the idea of giving a testimony. Um, we, we tend not to use that word testimony the way it really was structured to be used. Mostly for us, when we talk about testimony, we talk about our story. Born and raised in Canada, that was pastor, came to faith at a young age. You know, we, we give all these stories about things. There's nothing wrong with our story. Our story is important and how we came to know the Lord. Those are unique and personal things and all those are good. But a testimony really begins when you testify or martyreo to the truth. So the most important part of someone's testimony is what is it that you believe or what is the truth of your salvation? In saying that, what I'm trying to say is everybody's testimony is exactly the same, right? We're all sinners saved by Christ. And so we express it in our own ways, in our own language, in our own phrasing. But what we're really trying to say is my salvation came through Jesus. My struggle to find that, you know, was through this or in college or in this situation or after a car accident or whatever it might be. But testimony is to testify, that is to bear witness to what is true. And what is true is the work of Jesus, which as believers, it's always the same work. Does that make sense? So a Christian testimony, the details are different. I was born here, you were born there, these kind of details, you were very young, old, whatever the situation may be. But the testimony is actually always the same because it's always about the issue of what actually saved you, not how were you saved, but what saved you, and what saved you is always Jesus, right? We're never self-saved, we're saved by Jesus. So Jesus is saying <clears throat> to Pilate, Pilate being part of the Roman government, probably the strongest force in the world, or at least the Western world, it's a little hard to always compare the Roman Empire to whatever was going on in the East, but nonetheless, the Romans were in power, certainly in the Western world, and, and, and they had the corner on power and strength, and, and the, this governor, Pilate, says, verse 38, what is truth? 
kind of interesting that they've got all the power, they're just not sure what's true. What's truth? And Jesus had just said, I've come to testify to the truth. And so this is all part of uh, how the gospel of John has been arranged to help us understand this question and better to understand the answer. What is truth? How is truth revealed? Remember what I said, I didn't really have a good title, but I wanted to understand how God makes himself known. And so this passage is going to be kind of our, our main passage and kind of leaning against to understand how God makes himself known. And it's directly retied to why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? <clears throat> I was born and came into the world to testify, to bear witness to the truth, okay? That's why Jesus came. And so we've got to figure out how does God make himself known, which I might want to say, how does God make truth known? Wouldn't it be nice in the upcoming election if whatever was broadcast through the media was always true? Like, not, not just that he said that she said that they said that they did or they didn't, but that they actually did, right? That, that we would actually know, or if I'm elected, I will so-and-so such-and-such. We'd actually know, would they? Or even legally, could they? Sometimes you put forward ideas that aren't, wouldn't even be legal if you wanted to uh, impose them. But nonetheless, so we want to center our understanding of why Jesus came, because I think that's going to help us to understand how God makes himself known. I'll see if I can <clears throat> continue to tie those two together as we work through it. So keep John 18 in mind. We're briefly going to leave John. We'll be right back. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 little bit of background that we need. 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 1. <clears throat> Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, trying to encourage them, trying to remind them, if you're familiar with the writing of 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of problems in Corinth, a lot of challenges, and trying to, if you will, set them right, uh, correct some wrong thinking, uh, 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 point them in the right direction. We pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writing here in verse 17. For Christ did not send me, me would be Paul, to baptize. There'd just been an argument about who baptized who. Was I baptized by Paul? Was I by, baptized by Apollos and so on? And Paul writes, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Gospel simply means good news. Um, the gospel or good news, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Kind of an interesting comment. Paul is, again, a well-trained, he was trained as a Pharisee, he's well-educated, he's well-trained, but his job was to preach the gospel or the good news, but not with wisdom, not with eloquence, otherwise the cross of Christ might be emptied of its power. So it wasn't about the great presentation or the wisdom in arguing. Well, hopefully he'll explain more. Verse uh, 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, and now Paul will quote Isaiah chapter 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Paul goes on, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And we're going to keep reading, but just kind of watch. We're just going to be foolish and wise and foolish and wise. We're going to go back and forth with foolish and wise and wisdom of the world. And the wisdom of the world isn't wise. It's foolish. And, and God's wisdom, God's truth is 
foolish in the eyes of those who have worldly wisdom. We'll, we'll see if we can figure this out. Verse 30, uh, 22. Um, <clears throat> verse 22. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom in the Greek culture philosophy. If you know anything about uh, uh, Aris, uh, um, Socrates, there we go, and then uh, uh, Plato, and then Aristotle, they were very much into their philosophies. And what they were always looking for is the next good, really what it is, it's the next good reasonable understanding of how things work. That's what Greek philosophy is. It's a way of putting things together to explain how things work. And so they were always looking for wisdom, that is, a, a reasoned explanation as to how we got here, where did everything come from, what's our purpose in life, where are we going, and so on. It never involved God and the, the true creator. It always involved this, these ideas of men as to explain how things are going on. Example, if you read any Plato, he has this long illustration about being in a cave, and really this world is all about seeing a shadow, and something else is real behind what we see and feel. And that was his way, his wisdom in explaining what was going on. So Jews are looking for signs, and Greeks are looking for wisdom, and Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. Here we contrast again the wisdom and the foolishness. But to those God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We could keep keep going on. I'm going to just stop there. That's enough to see. Paul will continue in that argument, foolish and wise. The words of the wisdom, the thinking of the world, it's the, the smartest of the smart is foolish in the eyes of God in light of the gospel, in light of the stumbling block of, of the cross. And of course, we can just quickly summarize that. The idea that an infinite, loving, and perfect God would send his only son to die for sinful people made in his image is a bad idea, right? That's the foolishness. Why would a good God sacrifice his own son, a good son, for bad people, right? It, th that's the foolishness. But that's what God has done. And, and so this is the point related back to what we read in John 18. Pilate asks, what is truth? The idea behind the question, of course, is that truth is something that we figure out. Different cultures, different generations, uh, uh, different uh, systems of thinking, uh, uh, people define their truth. We have that in our culture today. We have acceptable phrases that people use to define truth. We often use phrases like, well, what I feel in this situation, in other words, my angle on truth is going to be this, and someone else can have an other angle, as if there would be multiple truths or that truths are relative. It's pretty common in our culture. In different generations, in different eras, they would say different things. And all Paul is saying is, by the way, it's all foolish. As a matter of fact, I want to begin to show you that it's not even possible. That is the way of the world. And if you think of our world, uh, for example, one way we could, we could maybe try and corner this idea of, of truth or wisdom is, is go to the right schools and, and get the right education. And whether we're talking about Ivy League schools or maybe we're talking about uh, schools in the UK and Oxford or Cambridge or maybe we're talking about multiple degrees, a, a master's, a, a doctorate, a postdoctorate, and, and all sorts of what, what's being said is if it's given you the wisdom of the world, it's foolish. All of it. It's an interesting idea. Jesus came and he said to testify to the truth, 
Paul is reminding the church at Corinth that the wisdom of the world is all foolish. And what is true or what is wise is the gospel, the good news. Well, what's the good news? That a good God sent his one and only good son to die for bad people, sinful people, sinful people made in his image who chose to defile his image. And, and, so, and so we start to see this. I'm going to show you one more, and then I want to show you why I'm showing you. Matthew chapter 11. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11. I promised we'd stay mostly in John. We'll soon be back. Matthew chapter 11. Uh, picking it up in verse 16. Jesus has been doing miracles uh, around the Sea of Galilee in places that uh, Wayne and Kathy will be giving tours in, in places like Capernaum, which really becomes Jesus' home base for ministry. Jesus grows up in Nazareth, right? Born in Bethlehem, uh, escapes to Egypt for a period of time till Herod dies, grows up in Nazareth, right? And then begins his ministry and kind of relocates shortly after he's rejected in Nazareth, relocates to Capernaum. So if you've been to Israel and you've done the Sea of Galilee area, you've probably gone to Capernaum and that was kind of Jesus' hometown. Well, now he's been ministering there in, in, in Capernaum and Bethsaida and some of the areas around there, and, and, and he's going to say these words, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. Jesus is speaking, he says, to what can I compare this generation? They are like, little chi- uh, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. His little illustration that Jesus is giving is, i.e., people aren't responding, right? We played the song for people to dance, no one danced. We played the the dirge for people to weep and mourn, and no one mourned. There's no response in these people, is what Jesus is getting at here. For John came neither eating nor drinking, right? John, remember locusts and and honey and and his clothes and everything, kind of dressed like some of those Old Testament prophets and sort of a word picture of the despair of Israel. And John came neither eating nor drinking, and that is the the, uh, John the the baptizer. And uh, they said he is a demon. The son of man came, that would be Jesus, eating and drinking. And they say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent, right? Remember the little thing? We played a dirge and you didn't mourn. We played the, the, the uh, pipes. Uh, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance, right? There's been no response. You've seen these miracles and you haven't responded. Look at what he says, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin, one of the little towns on the, on, the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, those are pagan Gentile cities on the coast of the Mediterranean, um, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Just to help you kind of think this through, Bethsaida, it's somewhere in the region of Bethsaida that Jesus fed 5,000 people five loaves and two fish. Okay, what was the response? Nothing. No response. And and so now he's saying, woe to you, Bethsaida. You saw an amazing miracle. Didn't move at all. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, that would be his now hometown. That's where he lives. And if you've gone to visit there, that looks like it's Peter's hometown. That's where Peter's mother's 
home is, probably where Jesus would stay when he was there. And again, if you visited these places, you go in Capernaum to visit the home of what we think is Peter's mother. Careful what you say, Jesus. And you, Capernaum, uh, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in, in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that there is, it'll be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So to Bethsaida and to Chorazin, he compares them to Tyre and Sidon, two Gentile cities. Had I done the miracles in Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon would have repented. You guys didn't. To his own hometown, he compares to Sodom. You remember the issues in Sodom? Sexual debauchery and immorality and just unspeakable evil going on. And guess what? Better for Sodom than for Capernaum. That's what he just said. Verse 25, at that time he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, i.e. the people in Bethsaida, smart folks, right? People in, in, uh, in, um, um, in his hometown, uh, you, you know, they know what's going on. And Jesus says, I praise you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And again, we could go on, but we see that Jesus is saying, because they don't respond, he warns them. This woe is this warning of impending judgment. And then he says, I'm glad, Father, that you didn't work through the wisdom, right? You didn't reveal it through the wise people, those who are well-trained, those who have the right credentials after their names, those who are well-studied and so on. Um, you revealed it to little children, so again, we have this comment about sort of wisdom and, and, and how it's not accepted by those who it's presented to, but then it is accepted by sort of the unexpected, the, the child. The, the child receives. You see, children, the idea behind the, the little children is always the idea that they know they're dependent. Mommy, I want this. You know why they say that? Because they know they can't do it themselves right? I mean, they know where the kitchen is, but they don't know how to turn the kitchen into chocolate cake. So they ask the mom, can I have chocolate cake? Or the dad, can I have this, right? They're dependent. And, and as we grow, we become, well, something that our culture champions, something called independent. Now, none of us are. If you were, you wouldn't need to come to Marathon. You wouldn't share your prayer requests. You share your prayer requests because we're dependent, right? We're all dependent on each other. We desperately need each other. And furthermore, we're all codependent on the Savior because that's really where the source of power is. And, and, and so this is what Jesus is now presenting. Okay, let, let's, let's focus on, on this idea from John 18 where we started on, on, um, <clears throat> on this idea of truth. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. And we've seen a couple of passages show that worldly wisdom, worldly truth, ends up to be foolish, okay? That's just a summary statement. What we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what we see from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, is that wisdom, the worldly wisdom, ends up to be foolish, and, and the truth ends up to be, in this illustration, embraced by little children, okay? So we now want to see, okay, so if worldly wisdom will never get you there, Here's my point. The only way that we can encounter truth is for God to give it. In other words, you can't study enough, you can't get enough degrees, you can't read enough books, you can't go to enough lectures, you can't 
attend enough seminars to somehow figure it out on your own, we are unbelievably lost. And what seems wise to us is, in the words of Paul through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, multiple times, foolish. We, if we want to encounter truth, will need it to be given to us, brought to us, delivered to us, because we have no ability to go find it ourselves. It's going to need to, well, watch how John does this as we look at how truth is revealed. I'm going to read several passages. You can follow me uh, in your Bibles or simply just listen because we're going to jump from passage in John to passage in John to passage in John. I want to show you sort of how they fit together. John 1, 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. John chapter 1, you remember how it began in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, was with God in the beginning. John 1, 14, and now he's come to dwell among us. The idea of the Word being made flesh, excuse me, and dwelling among us. And so John 1 is introducing this idea that the Word of God has come to dwell among us. The Word of God is ultimately found or fulfilled in the Son of God. And then we get this passage. I'll read it again for you. John 1, 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. You can go back and read Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, for that, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth, and I want to focus on the truth part, came through Jesus Christ. Where did we get truth entered in? It came through Jesus. Okay. Now, Jesus has already introduced in John chapter 1 as the word. That is, part of what we're saying, <clears throat> excuse me, is that Jesus is the truth. And when he comes, Jesus is the truth. And we'll see that a few different times in a few different ways. But what we also see is that Jesus is the word of God. And really, the word of God begins in Genesis and ultimately ends in Revelation. And so the whole Bible is this presentation of truth presentation of truth. Why? Because you'll never get it on your own. None of us will. It's not that you won't, but I did. No, no. I won't, you won't, they won't, he won't, she won't. No one will because wisdom for the world is folly in in comparison to the wisdom of what's it always compared to? The gospel, the good news. What's the good news? That even though you can't save yourself, someone's willing to do it for you who can right? That's the good news. You can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself, but someone is willing to do it for you. And that someone is able. I mean, it'd be great if I said, listen, you can't save yourself, but I'm willing to do it for you. And then you say, well, are, are, are you able? Well, no, but I'm willing, right? <laughs> Jesus is not only willing, he's able, right? That's, that's unique. I might be, I'm not willing, but let's say I was willing. I'd say I'm willing, but I'm still not able. It doesn't help you anything. Willing and able, right? That's the good news. Jesus is willing. Jesus is able. So, truth came through Jesus, and he makes the Father known, okay? John 18, we had a statement. I was born to testify to the truth. Remember that? John 18, okay? John 1, truth came through Jesus, and he makes the Father known. That is, the Father is truth, and the Son makes the truth known. John 5.30, I by myself 
can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but the one who sent me. Jesus says, I'm acting, I'm doing, I'm thinking, I'm talking, I'm speaking, not on my own words, but on behalf of someone else. That is, the Father. It corresponds nicely with John chapter 1, that he has come to make the Father known. John 14, Jesus answered, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So John is painting this picture for us. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's helping people as you work through the Gospel of John, through chapter 1, through chapter 5, now all the way up to chapter 14, ultimately through chapter 18 where we started, in helping us see this role of Jesus. Jesus, why did you come? Chapter 18, I came to testify to the truth. Jesus, why did you come? Well, chapter one, I came because truth comes through Jesus. I came to, 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 to carry the truth, to make him known. Who's him? That's the Father. John chapter five, it, it's not about me. I, I, I do nothing on my own. I come to do the will of the Father, the work of the Father. And, and now we get to John chapter 14, Jesus answered. And, and the question going on in John 14, if we had enough time to look at John 14, uh, the question that's going on is very simply, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And one of the disciples goes, well, we have no idea where you're going. Like, where's that? Where is this place where your father has many rooms? And so where is that? And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. They asked, where are we going? Where are you going? He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you really know me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip's got a question. Uh, Lord, uh, show us the Father. That'll be good. That'll be enough for us. Because Jesus has now said, we now know the Father. And we're like, we, we, we just know you, right? I mean, well, we haven't seen the Father. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the physical manifest, uh, manifestation, the thing that you can see, to see the Father who is spirit, that which you cannot see. When you see the Son, you've seen the Father. And now you start to think about how that all fits together. Jesus came to testify to the truth, meaning the truth is the Father. And Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, to martyr to the truth, to testify to the truth. And then we see that Jesus came, uh, and truth came through Jesus, ultimately to make the Father known. He came to make the Father. Jesus is a giant billboard, and he looks like this. That's what Jesus is. You look at Jesus, and Jesus is pointing you to the Father whom you can't see. Oh, great, you want me to believe in something you can't see? No, I want you to believe in something you can see. Jesus. Perfect God pointing to perfect God. Okay? And so this is what we start to see. Truth is not a philosophy. Worldly philosophies, they're foolish, all of them. No disrespect to all the philosophers out there, but they're all foolish, right? Truth is personal. It's found in the person of Jesus. And so anything that goes for a worldly, I've got this great system, I've got it all figured out. No, no, systems are foolish. 
God is relational and gives us a relationship with his son who is the truth, who brings the truth, who points to the truth, and the truth is the father. John chapter 15, when the advocate comes, verse 26, John 15, verse 26, when the advocate comes, that would be the spirit whom I send to you from the father, that's Jesus speaking, Jesus will send to you the advocate from the father, the spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father will testify about me. And you also must testify, you must bear witness, you must martyreo, for you have been with me from the beginning. And so we find out that God the Father is truth, that Jesus is truth and came to testify about the truth, to show us the truth so that we could see the truth, and ultimately that we are given the Holy Spirit to live in us, which is the spirit of truth. That is the very nature of God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and there's only one God. The very nature of God is the very structure of truth. It is the very structure of revelation, how we can know truth. And ultimately, it's the very structure of Scripture. You see, what this actually was, was just the doctrine of the Bible, That's what the Bible is. It is the Son making the Father known, and we're so sinful, we can't see it unless we have the Holy Spirit within us guiding us into all truth. You see that? Truth is personal, and yet that's what God is giving us in his word. He's giving us, ultimately, not merely information about truth, but he's showing that truth is personal. Ultimately, truth is found in the Son. When we look at our world or we roll back the clock 100 years or 300 years or 700 years or 1,351 years, it's always the same thing. The world is lost and needs to see truth, and truth is always personal. That is, it's found in a person, not a system. It's not that, boy, if we last another hundred years, technology will be far enough along, we'll figure everything out. No, we won't. Foolish. We were designed for a relationship. And so God reveals himself through Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son testifies to the Father, and the Holy Spirit fills us to make himself known. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that in the end you make yourself known through your Son. And that you give us your word that we can ultimately know your son. You give us commands and we need to obey them. But most of your word is revealing what you look like. Father, we're a lot like Philip. We wonder, well, what are you like? What what would we see if we could see you? And yet we're reminded by the question of Philip that when we see Jesus, we see you. And so we're mindful that we submit ourselves to you and to your truth. For that is really what truth is that we don't need to develop our own philosophies, but ultimately your word has given us that which is true. And so, Father, not only is that what we need, but that's what our world needs. And so we pray that we would be reflectors of truth, that we would be more like your son, that when people look at us, they might see truth, that is, Jesus. That you might go and use us even this week to further your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a good week.